Welcome to Amplify, the personal brand business show. Today on the show, Bob is speaking with Beth Miller. When you mentioned the fact that I, I didn't have to do this, I didn't have to do that, uh, my sister always says, you know, Beth's tagline is, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And so that has been sort of my, not my mantra, but my driver, I guess, for my whole life was, if you are good enough, they will accept you. If you make it big enough, if it's great enough, if people really change, if it's successful, then you've earned your place to be here, like, just in general. That was a lot of what drove me. Hi there, and welcome back to the Personal Brand Business Show. My name is Bob Gentle, and every week I speak with incredible people who share their secrets to building, marketing, and monetizing your expertise and the unique mindset you need for your business to grow and thrive. If you're new to the show, then while I still have your device in your hand, take a moment to subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, that's the follow button. Any other platform, it's probably called subscribe, and you would make my day. So advocating for the underdog is probably one of the most powerful content marketing strategies there is. And there's a good reason pet pictures tend to go viral online. And this episode is my pet picture underdog episode. This week, I am delighted to welcome Beth Miller from Wagtown to the show. We'll get into what Wagtown actually is in a minute. But Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having the conversation with me. I'm really looking forward to it. I have been for a while. But before I get into all my questions and the obvious one about what Wagtown is, for the listener who's meeting you for the first time, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about Wagtown and a little about who you are and what you do? Certainly, certainly. Well, Wagtown is a nonprofit organization that I started, a 501c3, in 2016. Uh, my background was 30 years um, owning and running and doing strategy marketing with an ad agency kind of in- industry. So I, I love the passion and learning about new things and connecting with different cultural um, trends and things like that. And you know, I've always been in the in the pet space because we had clients in the pet space, and I've always been a dog lover and was active in training and showing and competing in obedience. And so it was um, something that I always was drawn to in terms of like the hobby side of me. But in terms of the business side of me, when I started to work more with nonprofits through my business, I fell in love with how much passion people had for what they were doing. And the idea of adding marketing to a mission uh, was somewhat foreign to them because they don't have money to develop what that mission looks like in terms of steps to get there. So I had a conversation with a Humane Society director that I know and asked him what the community would look like when they were successful. And he couldn't answer the question. Even with me prompting him, he couldn't answer the question. I thought, well, we're never going to get there. (laughs) So that made me think, well, you know, I'm not the one who's out at three o'clock in the morning to pick up a box of kittens, right? But what I could do is I could create a community where somebody else or a group of people or a community would say, first of all, we don't leave a box of kittens. Second of all, how can we support the Humane Society and other advocates and et cetera, to have the tools and the resources and the prioritization so that they can make that happen. So that's, I just started to jump out, quit my my cushy C-suite job and, you know, could have done that with my eyes closed for the rest of my life, but no, let's, let's jump out. So I took this leap of faith uh, in the fact that I had developed, you know, a lot of award-winning materials from a marketing perspective and I had 
background in doing culture shift projects with like reforestation and cycling and all those things. And so it was um, not a blind leap necessarily, but I think I was blind as to how overboard I can go with the project. So I went on uh, this journey of doing secondary research on dog friendliness, and that yielded um, cities that would pop up frequently. And so we did a little sort of mini algorithm to find out what those were, because my goal with Wagtown was to develop a brand for myself. My 30-year career was creating a brand for other people, right? So now it was sort of, um, I'm used to being, you know, back in the studio, my client is up on the stage at the TV station and I'm like, smile, right? And now it's like, nope, you stand out there. And so even though I've coached it, I've taught professionally um, at the university level for communications, it's still, you know, you get out there and you're like, oh, you know, I'm on. So if I'm going to represent that work, then I needed to put that work that I encouraged my clients to do uh, for myself. And so one of those things was I wanted to know what I'm talking about. When in, let's see, 1990, when I graduated from college, I had my first ad agency interview and David Thurkelson, I remember he asked me, at the end of your career, what do you want people to think about you? And I thought about it for a second. I said, "Um, I think I would be successful in this career if when someone had a marketing challenge that was significant and they didn't know what to do, that they would know to call me, that I would be willing to help them, whether it cost them or me one way or the other, we're going to find a solution. And I find that I'm in the same position now, right? I want to know as much as I can. So even though I did a little bit of um, marketing research with a couple of universities, I left home, so to speak, and went traveling all over the U.S. and um, talk to people, directors of um, economic development and transportation and public safety and public health and public art and obviously the humane organizations and infrastructure and the bar and restaurant industry. Because in my opinion, when you plop poodle into a town, there's a ripple effect from that dog entering a family or wherever it lands, right? So if we want to create a world that is more dog centric, which then lends itself to better health outcomes, better safety outcomes, all of those categories I just mentioned, we need to create a space for that to flourish. So that's what Wagtown is. 800 interviews later, many, most of them face to face all over the place. It really immersed me in sort of a, sort of an, um, I don't know, it was, a, it was a combination of qualitative and quantitative, and then just a lot of anecdotal information that I was able to absorb that gave me sort of a 360 perspective on, oh, that's what dog friendly could mean. And if you ask me what it means, well, that's a whole other story. But that was my goal was how can I build something that will shift the perspective on how we approach dog friendliness? And then, you know, this sounds naive, but wait for that to bring to the surface a vertical that would take off on a for-profit perspective that would you know, put me back in the earning category and then fully fund the nonprofit work that I'm doing with Wagtown. So there's a lot going on there. I think that what I take from that is the whole idea of a niche or a niche. A lot of people, when they think about this, it triggers fear because let's face it, you could probably have continued a very healthy corporate career, or you could set up your, on your own, gun for hire, and done very, very well. I am curious to hear a little bit about, okay, I decided I'm going to go all in on dog friendliness, the wackiest niche 
I've heard of so far. And we can talk about that. But I'm curious to know emotionally, what did that look like for you? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, I've thought about sharing this and this is the first time then. So let's just go. Um, I'm adopted. And uh, there comes along with that there for some people. And I was one of those sense of who am I and where am I headed and why am I the way I am and why do people react to me in certain ways and what that life journey looks like. And so I think there was a level of understanding of what it is to be tossed away, you know, so to speak, that's a little harsh, but, you know, tossed away and then picked up by someone else. And, you know, I was lucky to have, you know, great resources on both sides. I was able to then find my birth parents after decades of relentless searching. But one of the most rewarding things I've ever experienced because it brought me full circle. I don't know if you are familiar with Ancestry.com, but they run these spots all the time now. It's like, you know, I just found out that I wear the same kind of sneakers that my great, 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 great grandmother knew. I feel whole again, right? And I'm like, I didn't even know who they were. And it was illegal to put the father's name on the birth certificates where I lived until 1982. So mm. legally, I couldn't do it. Like They weren't going to give me my certificate. So it was like, based on that categorization, there are so many resources that are not available to you. Um, if there are health issues that you need to know about, things that are just as simple as that. And so I, I just thought, well, this is part of that factor of that I really don't care for humans. <laughs> I, um, I kind of thought, you know, if you imagine this, what would the globe, the world naturally look like if humans were never here? I've thought and about that, that many be, times. Yeah. I mean, that would be astonishing, just the air quality alone. I mean, can you imagine you could just drink out of any water you felt, right? And so I, I kind of had this jaded opinion about humans and their ability to create um, harm to people and to create sad situations. But um, I really leaned into animals. So my bedroom when I was growing up was just covered with pages that I had torn out of nature magazines. And I would put them on the wall, floor to ceiling, side to side, and none of them ever had any people in them. Like if I had a horse picture, it didn't have a bridle on, nothing. And that kind of helped me feel like I was surrounded by um, things that hadn't been spoiled, right? But then as I got a little older, you know, there were some times when I needed rescued from some things that were happening and, and that didn't happen. And so you, you have this sort of defensive mechanism that made that even worse. So then I, you know, lean again into animals and dogs and I want to be a veterinarian and that kind of whole thing. And then you get to the vet veterinary, you know, I'm going to be an assistant at this office and this is going to be great because I can learn all about what I'm going to be when I grow up, so to speak. And then you see what people will do to animals. And then I couldn't do it. I'm like, I can do the dog stuff. Nothing grosses me out. That's fine. But I just couldn't handle seeing what people were capable of in terms of how they would treat another animal. So there again, right, it's this constant. But then I started to, I guess, broaden my horizons about my experiences and maybe start to look for things that were wonderful that were happening. And it was sort of this catching fire thing where I would see things and I'd say, wow, that's amazing. And we do have, you know, and culturally, and I don't know how it is around the world, but there's this sort of giving credit away right? To, oh, oh, thanks for this, or if it wasn't for them, or, you know, that kind of thing. And without owning the fact that one person made that happen. You know, if, if it's like 10,000 people have contributed, that's that's true, right? But one person said, what if we did this? 
Okay. So then I start to think, well, maybe people could make it right. Like we've already ruined so much, right? What if we could, you know, cherry pick initiatives that would really have a more broad approach to fixing things. And then I started to think about my ability to play a role in that, which was the culture shift perspective and the storytelling and the messaging and, you know, creating a network. And that network then became people who loved dogs, people who were advocates for, you know, humane treatment in general, not just animals, uh, people who were looking for places to live that were more vibrant and welcoming and infrastructure and policies. And I thought, wow, this is, this is like the humans that I want to live with. And they love dogs. So, you know, trying to, um, I guess, replicate what I felt as I was doing this process. And I could imagine I'm a very creative person, big imagination. So as I'm doing these travels and all these interviews, I'm just being, you know, kind of soaked in perspectives. And as soon as I ask if they have a dog, boy, that's, first of all, we have this immediate connection. And second of all, even though I went in with certain memorable questions and it's trying to be very careful about keeping the survey clean, right? But the minute I bring up Sparky or whoever their dog's name, it's like everything goes out the window and, you know, can I see a picture of your dog? You know, well, they did the funniest thing the other day. Oh my gosh, we just got a new puppy and it's driving me crazy. I never thought I, you know, would get another puppy and I forgot how hard it is. And so there's this constant churn of adventure and uh, life sharing that happens. And because people can relate to that now, especially after COVID. So now if you figure that 85 to 95% of people refer to their pet as a child or a, at least a family member. Well, when I was growing up, that was not the case. <laughs> you know, We had so many different views about how those animals could be incorporated into our lives. And so as this has gone along, I feel like I'm creating a safer space for people and for animals who want to belong, who want to be seen, and who want to be prioritized for care and inclusion. So I guess it's sort of my own path is what I'm trying to lead the communities to so that dogs can benefit, which then in turns, you know, trickles down into all the other things in our lives. I think it's, it's a really interesting story. And I think one of the things with niching or niching, I can never decide on one. <laughs> is that the tighter in you get, the more readily the people who you're for will speak to you. And I think in the pet space, that's particularly the case. I think if the pet-friendly niche that you have lent into is one where if people are into pets or animals, you're going to have their attention all day long. Whereas if you were a general generic consultant they would avoid you like the plague, I imagine, because they get hustled all the time. So lots of people want the pet industry's money. And if you're working with cities or municipalities, same deal. Everybody's looking for the money. But the mission matters. And I think what's interesting is people can niche for several different reasons. They can niche for mission. And you've clearly described niching for mission and trusting that the money will take care of itself. You can niche for money. And that's fine too, but be clear that's why it is. Or you can niche for what I'm what you might simply call celebrity. You want to be a big deal in a space. Some people do that, and that's fine too. But what's interesting with the mission side of things is if you are going into it authentically, into an, a niche where there is a clear need, the money can almost take care of itself. And I am interested to hear from you commercially what that's looked like. You also, I guess you, 
you need to go into that space with some clearly defined products and services, which I'm sure you have, but it would be interesting to hear. And it's aligned with the commercial questions. This is what I went into the space with, and this is what happened. What did that look like for you? For my journey, as far as how do I apply what the mission is, because it's great to have all that knowledge and to vision everything out, right? But you need to have something tangible that people can understand. And I did find that despite the fact that I had done all these interviews, so by the time I had developed these tenets of safety, health, economic development, um, welcoming infrastructure, more responsible behavior, and more humane communities, it's great to say that those are all important and that is something that creates dog friendliness. But you know, I could have answered that on the first day, right? Probably not the part as far as um, some of the more, I guess, dotted line associations with things like, do you think of dog friendliness having an effect on the economy? Maybe not, but what if you're a business and you're looking to relocate and you want to be able to provide a livable city with a healthier environment, safer communities, and a good economy? Wouldn't you want to attract and retain people using dog friendliness so that you have the kind of people who also are better balanced in terms of their physical and mental wellness? Uh, They're more likely to show up on time, work hard, be satisfied with their work. And so right there, you've got lower healthcare costs for that company, and that exponentializes when the entire community has that as an option to help people not just get better, but be better. So that was an interesting um, observation is that, well, that's great, Beth, but so what, right? So what I did then was I took a look at each one of those verticals, and I thought, okay, well, if we've got humane behavior as one of our pillars... What could I do that would change the world for that particular niche of the niche? And so I worked with people that I knew from my work in publishing services and wrote a children's book and a K through four curriculum with activities and take home materials and things that could be shared with parents and go from the classroom to the living room so that we could hit multiple generations in a way that teaches about safety and about the the role of dogs in our lives and how that can be different for everyone, uh, what humane looks like, you know, what's okay and not okay. And with the book, it really took on breed discrimination, which I know is a, a hot topic around the world, because when you take a look at it, different countries are at a different stage in how they view breed standards and, and breed restrictions and things like that. And I know there's this swing from bad human behavior, which is always in the mix with money. And so that's very motivating to people. And sort of the, you mentioned it, the the celebrity part of, you know, being this person that's bringing this to bear. And so with that, I wrote a children's book then that was, it just won the AKC Family Dog Book of the Year. So it talks about a dog named Tucker, who is abandoned because their townhouse has just banned pit bulls. And they didn't, they couldn't move somewhere else. So they ended up, the little boy, uh, Henry, took the dog to the park and tied him to a tree. And it was sort of like, I hope everything's okay, you know, and he's crying. And so we follow the dog's journey from confusion about why he's out there. And then morning comes and people are saying, stay away from that dog. It's mean, making all these assumptions about him. So he chews free and he gets to the city. And then we follow his journey of being found by the animal resource people and his joy at, you know, I've, I've got a new bed to sleep in. I have a fluffy stuffed animal. I have other dogs around here to hang out with. And he's excited. And then we see him go into loneliness and confusion and self-worth is lowered. 
And then, of course, you have the ending with forever love and being adopted and going to a community like Wagtown describes, where you you know have the ability to be included and prioritized because people realize, as they just said in the National Parks and Rec Association, people, we need to start regarding dogs as taxpayers and build accordingly. So that's a huge elevation from, you know, their cute pat on the head and I'll buy them a sweater to, you know, we're both in this together and I'll vote how you feel. So that was a way for me to get into multiple layers of primary education, taking materials home, uh, applying the national teaching standards, including social emotional learning. And then from a non-commercialized perspective, I decided to give it away. So we made it free through PBS Learning Media anywhere in the world to any educator. There's uh, some materials that go along with it. I wrote a children's song, which I am a horrible singer for, and, you know, children's books and doing assemblies and outreach to kids like that. And then Red Roof Inn bought a bunch of them and Shorty Rossi, who does work in terms of uh, street dogs in Mexico and education. So giving that to people in a way that they can, you know, take it and run with it, so to speak. So now it's in libraries and schools and daycares and camps as a resource for them to learn from that. And I feel a lot of, I guess, pride and satisfaction, but also comfort knowing that we're growing these little children and little ones to be the kind of people who would live in a town like I described. So that was a way to address that particular issue of, of humane behavior. And then you get into infrastructure and having inclusive spaces. And that can be a big lift because the cities are already tapped financially, operationally, and a lot of times people don't understand or want to understand how you um, interact with dogs in a dog-friendly way. So instead of trying to you know, create an entire city, what I did was I developed something called the Wagtown Dog Trail, and it was a two-mile trail in downtown Dayton, Ohio, that takes you through the city and it shows you different you know, trade uh, landmarks that you could see and along strips that have dog-friendly businesses and places you can go to eat with your dog. And all of the paw prints are signed by one of the dogs in the community as a donation to the project and working with the Scouts of America and really pulling people together on that. And then there was a local artist who's internationally renowned, uh, Mike Elsas, and just a super guy, very giving. And uh, he and his friend, John Doherty, were talking to, a, you know, it's one of those, Eva talked to John and Mike, and all of a sudden we have this project where we have these three-dimensional benches created by Mike, and he's never done work like that. And we installed those along the trail as Wagtown barking spots. So we were able to take an old transportation hub and turn that into like an information center where when we have events and then people who have nonprofit events for their um, for their shelter or whatnot, they can use that as sort of like a track, like a destination, even though it isn't a real place. And the interesting thing about that was in terms of brand, when I was I'm constantly trying to get people to cover to cover dog friendliness as a business subject, and it's very hard to get in there because to your point, when people see you know a baby golden retriever, they don't think business. It immediately goes from yeah. flight fright to emotion, and there's no cognitive behavior going on. And so it's the same thing there. They immediately think of their dog and how it makes them feel, and the fact that it's almost embarrassing to say this is a part of our economic development plan, especially if you're not on the West Coast. So again, when I started that project where there was a change to the infrastructure, it got a little bit of money from the city to help build that. And then I had communication materials that went along with that. That was the first time that I was able to get really serious consideration and then publication about my work. So it taught me that you, know, you need something that people can touch and feel 
right? And so that's been sort of my journey, my, um, you know, poor business of giving it all away continued through all of that. So part of that was um, my insistence that when I jumped ship and I was talking to my guy, I said, you need to understand something about what I'm proposing here. It's mission and then money. And you have to be okay with that, or I'm not going to do this. So he agreed, and I don't know that he, you know, thought knew what he knew what he was getting himself into. But part of that for me is I wanted to be genuine about the materials that I created, so that it wasn't like I did all this research and then I created all these products to make money off of dog friendliness, versus creating tools that help communities and then believe that one day something will happen where I'm like, oh. This is a need. I can address it. And there's nothing wrong with making money on it because it creates a, a new marketplace, right? Yeah. So now I've taken something great and created tools that are available to anyone from the philanthropic perspective, but then the ability to use a background of giving to create something that gives and gets for dog owners and for the people that need to help them was, is really rewarding and <laughs> a good affirmation of you know, if you make it and then you wait for a long time and just concentrate on developing that brand of credibility and authenticity, then to your point, it did bring out a lot of people to say, how can I help you? I think what's what's really interesting, I mean, you talk about build it and then wait a long time. That's not really giving yourself enough credit. I think what is interesting is I have been around not-for-profits my whole life and What's really interesting is sometimes they do okay. Sometimes they're extremely well-led and they thrive. And I think what's interesting from my perspective is looking in at what you're doing with an eye to the personal brand, with an eye to self-leadership. And you do things that in many respects you wouldn't have to do, like appearing on TV, that would intimidate an awful lot of people writing a book, you probably didn't have to do that. There's lots of ways that you could have run your not-for-profit in the same way most people run their not-for-profits, which is rather quietly, rather timidly, if I'm honest. You've really gone into, as one of my early podcast guests was a lady who made soap at home. And I get approached by people to come on the podcast all the time. And a lot of the, I see an awful lot of so what businesses. And this was potentially one of them. But then I kind of read through the pitch and it was started making home soap at home, turned it into a $25 million business in five years. Okay, I need to understand what. And when I asked her about this, her response was, your business will grow when you grow. And the not-for-profit space is exactly the same. Wow. That you could run it quietly in the background and do fine. But if you take on personal development alongside business development, that's when you thrive. And that's what I see is somebody who presents a fantastic role model to anybody in your industry. This is how to do it, which is why I wanted to speak to you and give you a bit of a platform as well. Oh, well, I really appreciate that. It's, it is difficult, I think, to, to make that choice. I was lucky that I could afford to. I had a place to live and things like that that I knew I'd be okay um, in terms of you know not being ending up on the street uh, because of this. But yeah, I think when you talk about that, you know, when you grow, your business will grow. When you mentioned the fact that I I didn't have to do this, I didn't have to do that. Uh, my sister always says, you know, Beth's tagline is anything worth doing is worth overdoing. 
And so that has been sort of my, not my mantra, but my driver, I guess, for my whole life was if you are good enough, they will accept you. If you make it big enough, if it's great enough, if people really change, if it's successful, then you've earned your place to be here, just in general. That was a lot of what drove me. And it drove me to until I dropped. Um, in the spring, I was in the hospital. It was um, something that it took over my life. I wasn't eating anything. Um, I was working 10 to 14 hour days. And there was some pushback from people I couldn't defend myself against because I'm the, the David to their Goliath. And the, um, I guess the, the scrapper in me was sort of like, oh yeah, well, if you want me to, to fail, just tell me I can't and just watch me and get out of my way. <laughs> that kind of perspective. And uh, which is terrific in terms of get up and go, but it's very hard on your mind and your body and being able to perform at your best. So it was important for me to, to check myself. And I do find that now that I've been forced to scale back and focus on, to your point, that just that sliver instead of that 100,000 foot view of everything, which I can never explain to everyone because it's too much. I've only had three people in the seven years that I've been doing this that understood what I was doing when I told them a couple of sentences. But it, that shows me that if only three people in all that time got it, I'm not to a point where they can understand that. So that's where you take those micro bites. And I think that that has helped me grow is to recognize not only my strengths, which I leaned into when I was you know, jumping into this, and you mentioned getting on camera and things. I wanted to be the loud voice in the room because the dogs don't talk. Everybody wants to speak for the dogs and they do, but I want to talk for the cities that support the dogs. I want to create those communities. I want to change people's minds and I want to show people what's happening, not just in their house or their neighborhood or their schools and their community, but their country and the world. It's we're all connected and we're seeing that more and more so. So we can learn from everybody with AI coming online. You know, what if we can figure out a way to talk to dogs? <laughs> the big question for people, do they feel okay? Are they sick? Is it their time? All that kind of stuff. Who wouldn't want to know if their dog was ready to go to die, right? Who wouldn't pay for that? So what if that's possible down the line? Well, we're not going to build those projects and pursue the pursue those initiatives if somebody doesn't have money to be made behind it. So we start to see like the Mars Corporation came out with a huge project, which is like marketing genius. Three months before I jumped, jumped ship and I, I wasn't aware of their stuff on the market, but it was called Better Cities for Pets. And it was a huge, huge um, application that they did with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And it was the first foray that I had seen where somebody was going after something like I was doing. Now, if you look at it from a business perspective, Wagtown creates a stronger market for all of the people in the pet industry. So it makes sense for them to sponsor something like that and put it in there. And so whereas I can you know, get into fourth grade classrooms, they can talk to the Marriott about making their whole ho chains, uh, their hotel chains more welcoming to dog owners and their and their furry friendly families. And so when you start to see those big boulders like that and having airports certified as dog friendly, you know, I can't make those those mountains move. They can. So they're paving the way for me to be able to come in and say, you know, we've already invested in this. It's been in the press because, you know, these are the big numbers that were behind it. It got national attention. It's in there with you know, the pet industry. Now there's room for me to go in and say, well, I understand now that you value it. Now, how, what are you going to do with that? In Ohio, it wasn't legal to have your dog on a restaurant patio outdoors until 2018. So we helped that be changed. But then what you have is dog friendliness in communities that don't know how to be dog friendly. 
So you have people that have a dog and think, now I can go. Well, is your dog going to enjoy that? Is that a good experience for them? Have you prepared them to be in that environment? And for the restaurants, are they training their staff, not just on picking up dog poop or, you know, wiping her fur off something or all the things that immediately come to mind? You know, is there the ability to train your staff on how to read dog body language? If you're switching mm. that over, there's generally no training. They're just like, you love dogs. You can have that shift, right? <laughs> Instead of taking a proactive approach that would say, we could monetize this. We have a new revenue stream now. And people are going nuts with this stuff. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that I've seen that are developed for the pet industry. And it's, you know, several hundred billion dollars worth of stuff coming in. And there's very little regulation. So it's kind of the wild west out there of you can mm. make anything and you can get through the cracks. There's a little bit of oversight, but not nearly enough. So there's a lot of money to be made, especially in like treats and food. They're leaning into sort of the natural things. And that's where you're seeing the money go. A lot of the grants and accelerator programs are going into those traditional routes. The nice thing is that if there's enough push from people like me and other dog advocates who are really, I guess, in favor of moving the needle in terms of the community culture, instead of just bringing a short a store in or you know those singular moves in the community, that they're going to hear that. And then they're going to say, well, if we want to make more money on this, we really need to include something about dog friendliness. So if you look at Subaru, Subaru of America runs ads, all their dog ads, ads have dogs. So Subarus are dogs, local food, community, all that kind of stuff. And I would say that they got it early. Now I don't get anything marketing that doesn't have a dog on it, right? <laughs> it's people of, you know, I'd say dollars follow dogs. It's this phenomenon we're seeing that people gravitate toward anything that's a silver bullet for that. And for me, dogs can be an unfair advantage if you know what to do with them. And so that became my unfair advantage. When I look at all my business strategizer documents and all that, when I get to my USP, the unfair advantage that I have is that no one has built the reputation without making money off of it, but strictly for the good of the dogs and the communities. You can't compete with that, even if you have all the money in the world. So that became my niche. I'm occupying that space so that if somebody comes along and they're like, no, I'm the expert. And I say, but are you considering this because you've been there and you've done this? And you know, you, do you really understand all the little nuances to something like that? And most oftentimes it's, you know, it's a commoditization of the experience. Yeah. But there again, it's not really for the good. So if we can collectively say we could do better and if we used dog friendliness as the driver, we'd get there faster, more efficiently and for less money. So on that note, I think that note being becoming that nexus point for dog friendliness. You mentioned to me before we started recording about a virtual summit, but I didn't have any time to ask you about it. So now is a good time to ask you about it. What's the goal there and what can people expect from that kind of online platform? Well, first of all, thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> this is a great platform for that. People, I think, will appreciate this, this move here. One of the challenges with Wagtown, as I mentioned, is I'm not the one picking up a box of kittens, right? So if I want people's attention and I am the pit and pick, kitten picker upper, then I can say, look, we have cats that need help. Please send us money. And that's their business plan, right? So when I come out and I say, let's be dog friendly, First of all, that's like being green. Like everybody now is saying they're dog friendly. So it's really difficult to stand out in that environment. But people don't understand that it does affect public safety and that it does affect our healthcare costs in, in the community and obviously humane behavior. 
And so if we want to have that be something that people understand that when you say, let's be dog friendly, it's not about putting a water bowl outside your cafe. It's about a systemic approach. So this is the dog friendly summit. We have people speaking from 11 different countries so far, and it really touches on those six tenets of Wagtown. So bringing in people to speak that I've collected in my network from doing this over seven years and never saying, hey, I need this. Can you do this for me? More so, um, you know, financially, right? Like I was, I reached out to you and you saw some something in my profile and my behavior and my background that it seemed like there was something there, right? So I think what we need to do is put something out there that gives a stage to somebody like Billy Groom, who is using canine cognitive behavioral therapy to prevent euthanasia, basically. I mean, she's amazing in using this new tech this new technique. I mean, she's been doing it for 20 years, but people I think are just starting to understand what that means. But no one's heard of it. Nobody understands it. But she's amazing at it. And she just struggles to get people to adopt it and shelters to use that. So what if she was able to talk to the world about that? Michael Blackwell, who is developing, you know, a, like a, a welfare Medicaid system for dogs so that when people have a dog and it's hit by a car, if you don't have means, the dog's put down. If you have money, the dog is saved. So we don't do that with people, right? You show up at the hospital, they take care of you, and then we'll talk about the money later. With dogs, it's like, well, let me let me see your bank account first, and then we'll make that decision. So that really speaks to equity issues. So how can we also bring in somebody that can talk about the effect on health as it relates to humans and at dogs at the same time and view that as a bonded family? So those are the kind of, you know, from this point to this point connections that I need people to understand so that we have a learning experience and then stopping at 2.30 in the afternoon, then we go into what's called the boop club. And that's where we have influencers and uh, dog chefs and they'll be like the, you know, the world's best dog party. And there'll be, you know, Melinda Kirkstanger who has global 2022. She had the, the best new product on the market with her, her cakes that you make for dogs birthday parties. So she's got this amazing costume she wears. And so it's sort of like learn, 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 connect with these amazing people from all over the world and get your intellectual wheels turning. And then let's shut it off just like you would at a conference where instead of having a, a you know, a beer or a martini at the bar, you know, you can have a drink at home with your dog. And then there are ways to go into like the room with like Liz Murdoch and Jill Laurie talking to people about how to communicate with your dog. And then we have a music room with Liz Spector and, oh gosh, what's his name? Um, Erica Messer from Wolfie's Wish. She plays the harp and Liz plays the piano. So there's a, there's a music room, there's an author room, and then just some general ask me anything rooms for people that uh, where the speaker has agreed to kind of take that on as an additional thing for the summit that they would create. Like with Billy's project, if you're not quite sure what everything means, then she hosts an, you know, ask me anything with some other behaviorists. So that then becomes the networking hour, because when I did my research about how we get there with a bunch of different industries, you know, resources and where and how to do it, it's obviously always on the table, but that subject matter expertise needs to be there. And for them to really get into that, the number one thing was always community. These yeah. people wanted to be in a community. So in order for me to bring those people together, provide them with resources that are kind of the tools that you would need in your toolbox to create dog friendliness in a safe and sort of expert-led way, we need a community. So if we bring them together at this summit, we can then transfer all of that passion and all those connections and the, the explosion of what happens intellectually and emotionally with people that have attended that. But then now there's this hunger for what else could we do with all this? 
And that's what I hope with this is that transferring knowledge, bringing people together and, you know, giving them inspiration and instantly, you know, being able to use some of those tools with downloads so the people can instantly be actionable to replicate what I have learned and what the mission is so that the vision can be global and it can be planned instead of just let dogs do whatever they want anywhere. And when is the summit? It is May 15th through 17th in 2024. And if people are interested, where can they go to find out more? They can go to dogfriendlysummit.com and get all the information there. If they would like to be a speaker, we have a place for them to register and apply for that. If you want to register for your space, um, you know, please come in and do that. Invite your friends. And we're going to be rolling out with like a buy one, get one so that people can attend with their friends who have dogs, because that'll be more community. And one of those things like, hey, do you want to go to this thing with me? Right. You've got comfort level of having your dog with you. It's virtual. You can do the replays and you can bring you bring your buddy there with you. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of learning and hopefully a way to substantiate what dog friendliness means and what Wagtown means. I really hope the people listening have got a lot from this. I certainly have. I think we can find role models in any industry. And I think it's really important for everybody listening or watching to realize that there are people who have blazed a trail ahead of us in lots of different ways. You might be rocking and rolling in one area, but really weak in another. And looking for role models that show you the way in different places can be really powerful. And I think for a lot of people, you given a lot of insight and offer that role model wonderfully. Thank so thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment coming from someone who understands the world and messaging and communication and reputation like you do. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Well, I mean it quite genuinely. And I need to end with the one question I ask everyone. And it's what's one thing you do now that you wish you'd started five years ago? Possibilitarian. I learned that word in a previous job and from my friend Lorca. And it has been sort of a lightning rod of the people that I want to surround myself that have the same energy and the same energy and sort of a what are you here for kind of way. And you can tell them, you know, they're the people that you find on LinkedIn on Saturday evening, right? Those are the people that are hustling for passion and for what's inside. For me, I just, didn't understand or fathom what that could mean. I did a post about a year and a half ago, and I put hashtag possibilitarian in it. And a guy named Faz Bashi, who I absolutely needed to meet for this to move forward, comments, I've had possibilitarian.com for 10 years. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances of that? So it's been very serendipitous. He told me to read a book called The Power of Pull, which everyone on the planet should read. It's an affirmation of any network efforts you've ever made in your life and an eye-opener about maybe how you didn't realize how valuable they were at the time, but how they just kind of roll in. You know, to your point about the dog factor, I mean, doing that and trying to lend credibility to being at the table, you need to just believe that those possibilitarians are going to be in the room with you. I absolutely echo that. I could tell you a lot of stories, but I won't because we're short of time. That does bring us to the end of another episode. Thank you to you at home for listening or watching. And if you did enjoy the show, then I would welcome you to leave a five-star review. That's five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Beth, thank you so much for your time. You've been awesome. You at home, 
are also awesome. And if you did enjoy the show, you will love the Personal Brand Business Roadmap. It's everything you need to start, scale, or fix your expert business. It's 100% free. As a gift from me, just visit amplifyme.agency forward slash roadmap or type the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening or watching, and I'll see you next time.